Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here. Thank you for joining us online. If you don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And we've just recently begun a new series, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy. We're going through a book by A.W. Tozer. Uh, if you're not in a life group, again, as we've mentioned, please connect with the office and we'll get you into a life group. We really feel that that's where um, the knowledge and the blessing of maybe Sunday uh, study of the Word becomes uh, tangible and becomes manifest in our lives is when we work it out in small groups of believers together and iron sharpening iron. And so if you're not in a life group, you're kind of missing out on a very important part of the church. And so we stress that. Um, Last week we did the introduction on a high view of God versus a low view of God, and now we enter into looking at the attributes as we go through the next 10 weeks or so and uh, studying what Tozer uh, has presented in in sort of um, prose, uh, in in sort of straightforward writing. Uh, We're paralleling what what Tozer is writing with Scripture and where he's getting uh, the writing and and where he's getting the meditations that he's giving us in that book. And we're starting with the Trinity. The the three-person essence of God may not exactly be an attribute of God, but his three-part nature is, is so intrinsic to his being, and it applies to all the other attributes and doctrines about him, that it really makes sense to address the Trinity first. Um, it's interesting that virtually every branch and denomination of the Christian faith agrees on its truth, and yet none claim to be able to explain or understand it. Whether you're Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Protestant, we disagree on lots of different things but we all confess the Trinity. And meanwhile, many Christians, even though their denomination or their faith may confess it, Christians like you and I sitting in the pews still struggle with the idea of the Trinity for various reasons, often only because it's so different a concept of being than anything else we know. I mean, I understand myself. I'm one being and I am one person. There is no other person to my being than me. So the Trinity and God being three persons in one is very alien to us. It's different than anything else we know. But when we're talking about God, different than anything else we know seems like a good description of him. Would God be utterly like anything else we know? Are we expecting an ant to understand an airplane? It would be a pretty simplistic idea of an airplane if an ant could understand it. In fact, so simplified that it wouldn't be an airplane at all. It would probably just be a falling leaf. And so... As ants are to airplanes, we are to God. And so for us to expect that we can understand God and God still be God in our understanding of him is a little bit foolish. But why does it matter then? If this is such a a wholly other idea that, you know, for centuries people have been unable to grasp, why does it matter? It's natural for many Christians to just kind of avoid the topic of the Trinity because it's so difficult to understand and so we give up on it a bit too easily. Or we just don't try very hard. We let our minds slip on to easier things about God to grasp or that we think are more helpful in our day-to-day Christian life. The Trinity just doesn't seem that important to our day-to-day understanding of our faith or God. It's just an abstract fact that we know about God, like maybe knowing a person has blue eyes or that they used to live in another country. It doesn't change much in how we engage with them. It's just sort of something that we know. 
And in that way, I think many Christians think the Trinity doesn't really change our day-to-day interaction with God. We don't really need to know that much about the Trinity or understand God as Trinity because it won't change the way we read the Bible or worship or pray or live. But as we consider the Bible, again, from cover to cover this morning, I think we'll find that the Trinitarian nature of God does impact our relationship to him. The Trinitarian essence of God touches on all aspects of his engagement with us. It is inevitable that it must, because it's not just that God has blue eyes or lived in another country. The Trinity is an essence of who he is. It has a direct bearing on the way we practice our faith, understand the gospel, and participate in Christian worship. And so as we seek to know the holy, as we go through this series, then we must know that the holy has made himself known as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that it's not inconsequential, it's not unimportant, it's not merely trivial, it's not optional to our growing deeper in our knowledge and our faith. We must understand, to the degree that we can, the Trinity. We must consider this knowledge of God as Father, Son, and Spirit as important to our faith. And we're we're going to tackle it this morning appropriately in three parts. What Scripture teaches us about the Trinity, wrestling with the hard bits recognizing the mysteries the Trinity creates for us, and why is the Trinity important to practicing our faith? Um, I'm going to pray before we start doing that. Father God, we are your children. We are your people. And we are, are particularly and specifically endeavoring to come to a knowledge of the holy, to come to a knowledge of you. And so this morning, as we open up your word, we trust, as we always do, that your Holy Spirit will open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, prepare us for what your scripture will teach, and that we will receive it as you intend it. It is truth for your glory and for our flourishing. Yeah, so we just come this morning, Lord, seeking to know you specifically seeking to know you in this Trinitarian reality, this three-part essence of your being, which is wholly mysterious to us, but so important that we know you rightly and, 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 and worship you as we should, as the God that is above all other gods, as the God that is wholly other, completely holy, completely apart from us, and yet present and imminent with us, in our very day-to-day lives, and in our presence even here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what does the Scripture teach about the Trinity? And this is going to very much just be a survey, because it's not really the most important part of this morning, although obviously it's very important. And so, we need to look to Scripture to see the correct view of God as He shows Himself to us. If we are to know the Holy, we should let the Holy speak for Himself. And if we just look in the Old Testament, the first thing that we see, um, well, I'll just say, if I was to do everything in the Old Testament, there's nine common arguments for seeing the Trinity in the Old Testament. But I'm just going to do three, okay? Uh, I'll do the three big ones. But there's six more if you want to go into them later. Um, the first one is God's plural name for himself. As many of you will know, when God first introduces himself and speaks of himself, it is as Elohim, the God creator, mighty and strong. It's the plural form of Eloah, which is the word that he would have used if he was singular. 
And the fact that God speaks to himself as Elohim indicates very early on in the scripture that there is something different about God from every other being. From the Bible's first sentence, the superlative nature of God's power is evident as Elohim speaks the world into existence. And then he goes on in Genesis and continues to use from time to time plural pronouns. He says, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life. And so we have God's plural name for himself. We have God's plural pronouns that he uses for himself. Secondly, in the Old Testament, we have pre-incarnate appearances of the Son, Christophanes. We have these occasional appearances, usually of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord is distinct from other angelic appearances because the angel of the Lord speaks of themselves as God. For instance, he'll say something like, the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Well, the angel is not going to affect Abraham's descendants, only God is. That covenant is with the Father or with Elohim, or with Yahweh. Or later on, says, Do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel of the Lord said. Do not do anything to him now. I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, in Genesis twenty-two twelve. And so you have this person, this angel, this appearance, and we know that God as Father is light and no one has seen the Father, and yet we have an appearance of a personal bodily presence of the Lord, which is quite often understood and we know to be the Son. Perhaps even more interesting, we have the Genesis 14 account of Abraham, he's Abram still at that point, encountering Melchizedek, a king of Salem. A city named Salem, which is a variant of shalom or peace, which the city will eventually become Jerusalem. And the Bible describes him as a priest of the Lord Most High. Except that's interesting, because at that point in Genesis, God has only revealed himself to Abraham, as far as we know, and led Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeas. Abraham, there's no nation of Israel yet. Abraham doesn't even have a son for a nation of Israel to come from. And yet this king of Salem is a priest of the God Most High. And what does this king of Salem do? In Genesis 14... He gives Abram bread and wine, and Abram gives him a tenth or a tithe of his possessions. And then later in Hebrews chapter 7, we have more information revealed about Melchizedek and his likeness to Jesus, even that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So we have the angel of the Lord appearing, the personal bodily form of the Lord. We have Melchizedek, this interesting priest of the Most High God who has no beginning and continues forever. So we have the Father, the Creator, Elohim, Yahweh. We have the Son incarnate even before he is born. And then in the Old Testament, of course, we have the Spirit of God active before the church age. The Spirit makes a pretty early appearance in verse 2, actually, of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so Elohim becomes Father, Son, and Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord fell on many leaders of Israel, like Judges, Samson, and Athenial, and on King David. The Spirit is referred to as being equivalent as presence with Yahweh, 
The psalmist writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? To grieve the spirit is to grieve God himself, Isaiah says, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he, that is God himself, fought against them. And so from the very beginning, we see that God has shown us, if we were to have knowledge of the holy, we need to understand that the holy is in three parts. The holy is Father, Son, and Spirit from the very beginning. But it was occluded. It was shadowed. It was, it was not perfectly understood exactly in the Old Testament who God was in his entirety. But of course, it's in the New Testament that what was obscured to some degree in the past became crystallized with the incarnation of the Son. God has deliberately shown himself in a new revelation by the Son and the Spirit, and he's engaged in his redemptive work in the new covenant with a new relationship with his people. The very incarnation of Jesus reveals the Trinitarian reality of God in the New Testament. We read of the conception of Jesus as the Son of God in Luke 135. It says, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Right off the bat, Holy Spirit, Most High, Son of God. Trinitarian nature of God becomes clear. Jesus says of himself that this is a hidden mystery that's now revealed. He says in Matthew eleven twenty five, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. And so Jesus is explaining to his disciples that there are some hidden things that are now being revealed. And perhaps, again, I'm going very quickly, the baptism of Jesus in the New Testament The onlookers there were uniquely able to see and to witness all three persons of the Trinities like never before and maybe like never since. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the Father's voice, the Spirit's presence, and the Son being baptized all in one place. This is the triune nature of God. As we go on through the New Testament, all three are referred to as God. The Father is God. We read in Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says things like, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Son is also God. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to whom have obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Thomas personally calls Jesus my Lord and my God in John 20. And although a little more rare, the Spirit is referred directly as God as well. Ananias and Sapphira are dropped dead after lying to the Holy Spirit about what they were going to give. And they had not lied to people, but to God, it says in Acts chapter 5. But the Holy Spirit is also referred to as God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are the same Spirit, then God and Christ and the Spirit are one, and the Spirit is one with them. 
And many, many, many more verses. Like I say, this is just a survey for us to see that as God reveals himself through his word, through his scripture, in the description of himself, he says, this is who I am. Um, In modern parlance, it would be, these are my pronouns that I want you to use for me. I am a father. I am a son. I am a Holy Spirit. I've told you how to relate to me. Please use the names, use the pronouns, use the descriptions of me that I have given you. Don't try to call me something else. Don't try to present me as something else. Don't worship me as anything else. I am Father, Son, and Spirit. Honor what I've revealed to you. And the interesting thing is, is if you just sort of glance back over these verses that I've touched on, every possible error of understanding the Trinity is countered by the plain teaching of Scripture. And I'm not going to spend the time today, you can get into those arguments in your group if you want, about what all the different errors of trying to understand the Trinity in our limited being are. The two big ones being modalism and Arianism. But, but God does not simply appear at different times in different forms. That's modalism. Like there is a mode that God appears as Father, you know, and then he goes behind the curtain and changes into the Son, and then he comes out from behind the curtain and changes into the Holy Spirit. We, we know that God is not merely modal in his presentation of himself to us because all three of God were at present at Jesus' baptism. So the Scripture does not allow modalism. Neither the Son nor the Spirit are less than God. That's Arianism, trying to make either the Son or the Spirit somehow not fully God or not God at all. Because we see them both equally attributed with the work of God in creation, in the atonement, in the resurrection, in salvation, in prayer, in receiving worship as God. Jesus receives worship. The Spirit receives worship. They are present at creation. They are present in salvation, working in the resurrection. All of these things, all three beings of God, all three persons of God are present. And so Arianism cannot be tolerated according to the Scripture. The Scripture eliminates all possible errors of misunderstanding God who is in his Trinitarian nature. And yet, at the same time, it's not that simple. We, we can't deny that the Trinity creates some very apparent paradoxes that we have to wrestle with as Christians. Mysteries that the Bible invites us to wrestle with, in fact. And and what I want to do is invite you to embrace the mystery and uh, embrace the wrestling. The Bible invites us to wrestle with these mysteries as part of our coming to know only God can be God and only God in three persons can accomplish what God accomplishes. The wrestling is important for our knowledge of the holy. The wrestling is important for our understanding God as transcendent. So we turn there now to wrestle with the hard bits that lead us into the mystery. And there's just sort of four hard ones that I'm going to lay out here. There's lots of hard ones. Um, But here's the reality of of what we have to deal with if we're dealing with a Trinitarian God. And and some of these things are what caused things like modalism and Arianism and, and other strange ideas about God to come about in the first place because people wanted to solve the paradox. They wanted to solve the mystery rather than just embrace and describe the mystery. The first hard bit is that Jesus equal to God and yet made lesser in incarnation. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held tightly to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. How can God empty himself? How can God become less than what he is? That's difficult to understand. We see here 
whoops, sorry, that not that one yet. We're not there yet. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 says that you made him, being Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So for a little while, Jesus was lower than the angels. Now, how do we wrestle with that mystery? How is Jesus God and yet still also man? In fact, we encounter another mystery there. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son is duality, holy man and holy God. So we wrestle with this mystery. We realize that, again, we can't reconcile this. We can't understand this. God revealing himself as Trinity seems to paint himself into a corner in certain places and make some of the things that he says impossible. But as I started out saying, wouldn't we expect God to be able to do things that we can't do? And part of wrestling with the hard bits and part of wrestling with the mystery is realizing that it is, in fact, only God that can do the things that God describes he's doing. That he can be God in three persons, and he can empty himself and be made lower while at the same time not ceasing at any time to be God. That's a mystery. You've got to wrestle with that. I'm not purporting to solve it for you in the next 30 seconds. I'm just going to give you another mystery. The inseparability and eternity of the Trinity, but the Father forsakes the Son on the cross. Mark 15, 34, and at the ninth hour, the Lord Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How? The Trinity's been together for eternity. If God, Son, and Spirit are one being, how can the Father forsake the Son? How can Jesus, for any moment or nanosecond of time, cease to be part of the Trinity when he's on the cross, and yet he says he is forsaken by God? It's a mystery. How do we solve that? It seems to be something only God can do. We can't conceive of it, but God says that it has been done. And you may think you're clever, and you may say, well, maybe... You know, maybe God can, maybe Jesus can kind of stay in the Trinity, but then not be in the Trinity at the same time. I can sort of understand that. Okay, how about this next one then? <laughs> he was. He was, but it's still true. Yeah. So if, if he stays in the Trinity and he's not really forsaken, because God wouldn't forsake his son, then you just run into the third mystery here. The purity of God bearing sin on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Okay, so if, if the Trinity can't be separated and, and it's just a poetic forsaking and Jesus really stayed in the Trinity, that, but then how did he bear our sin? Because God can know no sin. Sin can't enter the Godhead. It can't both be true that Jesus stayed in the Trinity and bore our sin and became a curse for us, or it can't both be true that Jesus left the Trinity and yet remained part of the Trinity. We're wrestling with the hard bits here. The, tr the Trinity causes problems, right? It's true. Everything God says about himself is true. We accept his nature, we want to worship him as he is. We want to know him as he is. And yet, as I said, it seems these hard bits paint 
himself into a bit of a corner unless only God can be God, and God can do what we cannot imagine. And finally, more personally, the indwelling of the Spirit that can have no fellowship with sin. How can it be, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Well, that is good counsel. But the Holy Spirit himself doesn't seem to take it because he yokes himself (laughs) with sinners. And we still sin. And yet the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is with us. How can that be? Certainly sin cannot enter the Godhead on the cross. How can the Spirit dwell with us in our sin while we are yet being sanctified and not yet glorified? We've got to wrestle with the hard bits. Because the Trinitarian nature of God is mysterious. It is wholly other. It causes us to scratch our heads and wonder. And as I say, I think the invitation into the mystery in all of these cases, God seems to do just like God does, to be doing things that only God can do. What may seem impossible or paradoxical to us is simply God being God, doing God things. In fact, these mysteries serve us helpfully to acknowledge that only God is God. As I started out saying, would it make sense that God would be explainable to us? That he could be described simply and logically by our imminent frame, by by our presence in this world, by the way we see other people interacting, by the way logic works in our reality? In fact, these mysteries help us to acknowledge that God is God and that he cannot be described or understood merely by what what Canadian theologian Charles Taylor calls our imminent frame. He can't be understood merely by the normal, natural reality and logic that we perceive around us. God transcends the imminent frame. He is wholly other and outside of it. He's wholly other and outside of what we can easily process as natural. God is unnatural. He is metanatural. And that should lead us to worship. Just because there's mystery, it doesn't mean it's unreal or untrue. Instead, we're invited to see the mystery, to describe the mystery, to acknowledge the mystery, to know what the mystery is, but not know the solution to the mystery. Not because it demands that God is less than what he's claimed to be, because the mystery proves that God is more than what he is. He's more than what we can understand. The author Dennis Covington, I think, put it most aptly. This will be helpful to us as we wrestle with these mysteries. Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And that's why I raise these hard bits, to cause us to scratch our heads, to say there's more meaning to the Trinity, there's more meaning to the Godhead, there's more meaning to the things that God is accomplishing than we can comprehend. Mystery does not cause us to say, oh, it can't be true, or it needs to be less true, or there needs to be less meaning, mystery causes us to say there's more meaning here than I can imagine. And I think that's partly why mystery's there. Because it leads us then, as Charles Taylor would say, into transcendence. That we are a generation, like many generations before us, who have lost the transcendent. We are a generation of secular reality. We live in the imminent frame. We live in what we can understand around us, what we can feel and touch, and what we can understand and what logically follows from our prepositions. 
And Charles Taylor says that we've lived so entirely within the imminent frame that we reject anything transcendent, and the mysteries of God are telling us and shouting to us that God is wholly other. The Trinity tells us that God is wholly other than who we are and what we can understand. The mysteries that the Trinity creates tells us that God is wholly other and apart from us, that he is transcendent of our imminent frame. He is nothing like the created order because he is the creator. And so we can recognize that the reality of the Trinity introduces mystery, but the mystery simply reveals to us the presence of more meaning than we can grasp, not less. God does not need to become something simpler or more digestible, something that we can describe like a yolk and a white and an eggshell or like a triangle or like a whatever. God doesn't need to become something that we can understand in our imminent frame. And all the errors of understanding God begin with that problem of trying to take the creator and make him like the created. Whether it's modalism or Arianism or any other ism that you can think of, all of these errors of understanding the Trinity come boil down to us trying to drag God into our imminent frame rather than recognizing and worshiping God as transcendent and outside of our frame. And it's exactly in the mystery that we find God being God. All right, Paul, but why is that important? Why is the Trinity inherent to our faith? Why does it have to do with my day-to-day living out being a Christian? Like, this is all kind of fun to talk about on a Sunday morning, and we can argue about it in our groups, and, you know, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but does it really change how I live and how I understand God? Well, of course it does. First and foremost, in relation to the gospel, which is the most important thing apart from God himself that it could pertain to. One way we might ask the question is, can a person deny the Trinity but still affirm the gospel as it's presented in the gospel? So is it possible to to trust and believe and wholeheartedly agree with the gospel and yet deny the Trinity? Or is understanding the Trinity important to the gospel and is the gospel important to the Trinity? Are the two so linked that you cannot deny one without denying the other? Can you, can you deny the Trinity but still affirm the gospel being that God so loved the world that he sent his son? who would die on a cross to make atonement for our sins, to rise for our justification before God, to grant us his righteousness, that only he has the righteousness of God, and give us the gift of his spirit to guide and guard us until our glorification. Can, can you deny the Trinity and yet affirm that gospel? Or does the gospel become incoherent in the absence of the Trinity? Well, you can guess even from the way I just described the gospel what my answer will be. The gospel becomes incoherent apart from the Trinity. God has to send the Son. The Son must be God for us to inherit his righteousness, for our righteousness to justify us before a holy God. The sacrifice for our sins must be equal to the person that we have sinned against. The Holy Spirit that guides and guards us must be from God. It must be his presence to guard us to our glorification and our perfection. Paul summarizes the Trinitarian nature of the gospel events perfectly for us in the letter to the church to the Galatia. He says in Galatians 4, 4 to 6, God sent his son, born of a woman, and we can just pause there and remember Luke 1, 14 and the Trinitarian description of God being born to that woman. The shadow of the Most High comes in the Holy Spirit so that he's born. God sent his son, born of a woman, so that we might become sons of God, and God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. That's the gospel right there. 
one verse, and all three are present. Everyone who has saving faith has been drawn by the Father, John 6, and moved by the Spirit to confess Jesus as Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, is forgiven their sins because the Father put forward his Son as the propitiation to be received by faith, Romans 3, 24. Every believer has received the Spirit as a seal and guarantee of that promise, Ephesians 1, 13. And I could show this gospel Trinitarian reality from literally every writer in the New Testament. But you just can't have the activity or the result of the gospel making any sense without the Trinity. If you tug at the thread of the Trinity, then you will unravel the doctrines of the atonement, of propitiation, of justification, of sanctification, of security, and dozens of other doctrines. You pull that thread of Trinity, and atonement and regeneration and propitiation start to make no sense at all. Why? Why does that happen? Well, for instance, in atonement and and propitiation, if Jesus is somehow less than God, then how can he be the atonement for our sins? How can he be the lamb without blemish? And in fact, it goes beyond just affecting the doctrines of God. It affects our relationship to the love of God at the cross or our understanding of the love of God to the cross. The Trinity's essentials are rightly understanding what's taken place on the cross and not lessening it or denying the magnitude of it. And this is what I mean. If Jesus is merely a created being, then we are not declaring by the gospel that God did not so love the world. We are declaring, sorry, that God did not so love the world that he came himself to save us. He loved us only enough to create and send another on his behalf. God created a lesser being and sent this lesser being to die rather than being willing to come and die for us himself. But that does a lot of damage to the love of God when you phrase it that way, doesn't it? That's not an insult to the love of God that I want to level at him. In fact, I don't even want to be standing nearby to a person who does level that insult at God. You deny the Trinity, you do violence to the love of God on the cross because God loved us so much that he did not just create an angel to send to die for us. God loved us so much that he came to die for us. Amen. Amen. So it does damage to the gospel. It does violence to the love of God. But it's important in relation to Christian prayer. It's Trinitarian as well, and we covered this in some depth in January. You could just go back a couple of weeks and go through that series again, but we rejoice then and now that our communion with God is accomplished by God through what his son has accomplished 2,000 years ago and also what his spirit does for us now. We can come to the throne of the Father only because the Son intercedes on our behalf, Hebrews 7.25. And even as we pray, the Spirit prays for us things we cannot think or know to pray because the Spirit knows the mind and the will of the Father, Romans 8.26-27. And so you can't have a prayer life as a Christian without acknowledging that the Trinity is important to your prayer life. In fact, you depend on the Trinitarian nature of God to be able to pray because the Father is who we pray to, but it's only possible because Jesus tore the veil and re-enabled the relationship on the cross, and we only know what to pray and pray with any effect because the Spirit prays on our behalf because only the Spirit knows the mind of God. And so even our prayer as Christians is Trinitarian in nature. Or we could talk about our Christian unity. In John 17, 20 to 21, 
Jesus says to, as he's praying before his disciples, he says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now Jesus is praying for us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the unity of Christian fellowship hinges upon the Trinitarian nature of the Father and the Son being one, and you can throw the Holy Spirit in there as well. The unity of the Trinity is meant to be passed on to the unity of the church, and it's passed on in the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, Paul just says, there's one body of believers because there's one spirit. And there's one spirit, and there's one father, and there's one son. And Christian unity hangs on this Trinitarian reality of the unity of the father, the son, and the spirit that have been unified and in unity since eternity and for eternity. Or you could look at our Christian mission. John 20, 21 says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Our, our mission as Christians flows out of this reality that the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit agreed before the foundation of the world that this mission of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation would take place. And so because they have this mission, we have this mission. And we have this mission in Trinitarian sending and in Trinitarian power. Not in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. Paul says, in my speech and my message, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of Spirit and of power. And so we're sent on this mission by the Trinity, and we're empowered for this mission by the Trinity. And so you see that the Trinitarian reality of God just impacts everything about our Christian faith. It impacts everything about our Christian walk. It impacts and should impact every aspect of how we live together as Christians because God is one and God is in three persons. And there's mystery there, and the mystery calls us to transcendence. And I think there's lots of ways I could talk about the way the Trinity impacts our worship, but I'll just return to that idea of transcendence. Because here's the reality is, as we try to fathom God as Trinity and the problems and the mysteries it creates and, and how it permeates all aspects of his instruction to us, the reality of the gospel, the reality of our Christian life, our relationship to him, the indwelling of the spirit, as we understand God in his Trinitarian nature and, and how pervasive it is, we recognize that we are inevitably standing at the edge of the Pacific Ocean and just dipping our teacup into it. And we have this ocean in our teacup, this little tiny bit of it. And we realize that our understanding is infinitesimally small compared to the ocean that we've just dipped it out of. And yet, and yet, the water in our cup really is the Pacific Ocean. We're worshiping the one true God, even with our teacup. Knowing the water in our teacup points us towards larger and deeper and wider mysteries of God, that that teacup is only just a shallow sample of. And that's transcendence. That God is utterly beyond our imminent frame, as the ocean is beyond the teacup. 
And yet the Trinity permits imminence and presence with us at the same time, just as the teacup lets us take a little bit of the Pacific Ocean with us. Because the Trinity, through the person of Jesus in history and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts now, we have a God who is transcendent, and yet we really have God in our jar of clay, in our teacup. We hold treasures in our jar of clay. God really is here with us, and so God is both transcendent and imminent in our worship. He is wholly other and wholly present, and that's possible by the Trinity. In the first 200 or so years of the church, they very rarely had to even mention the doctrine of the Trinity because it was just simply understood and known by all Christians. It's only when you get about 250 years into church history that all of a sudden these weird notions of denying the Trinity start to arise, and the church had to respond to novel and new interpretations like modalism and Arianism. And one of the earliest formal responses was the Athanasian Creed, which really felt like it had to make the case crystal clear. And it says it this way in part. You'll see what I mean. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal and the Holy Ghost eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal, as also there are not three uncreated nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. And it goes on like that for several more paragraphs. Amen, indeed. You you can tell just by the wording of the creed that these guys felt like this had to be made really, really clear. Like, you got to get this, church. And we're going to write like a page and a half of just repeating the same thing until you get it. It seems apparently that for some people, it is a difficult thing to accept the mystery of the Trinity. But if we take God's word as it is and accept that only God is God and only God can do these mysterious God things that we cannot otherwise explain, then there is great value to us in our Christian life. As Athanasius knew, there would be value in getting this crystal clear. Great value to us, not only to accept, but to embrace the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is wholly other and brings all of himself to bear on us, is cause for thanksgiving and worship. That that all of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is working on our behalf, should lead us into thanksgiving and worship. That God is never anything less than himself and always fully all of himself is cause for comfort. We are never lacking anything in God. And that he is always in unity. He is never double-minded or divided of purpose is cause for our security. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son. It was not the son who had to convince a grumpy God to love us. God loved us, the Spirit loved us, the Son loved us. They never do anything apart from the unity of the Trinity because they are one. And that gives us incredible security. The Spirit will not lose who the Son has given. 
and the Father will not reject those for whom the Son has died. So by all means, this week in your small groups, wrestle with the mystery of the Trinity, but wrestle with it only to discover God is more than we can imagine, never less. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that we're just on this journey right now, the knowledge of the holy. What a great phrase. What a great title. We, we want more knowledge of the holy. And so, Father, we just pray that as we look at your word, as we read the incredible meditations of Tozer, that we will embrace these truths, not be frightened by the mysteries or confused by the conundrums, but that we will describe them, know them, and in knowing and describing that mystery, recognize that there is more meaning to you, not less. There is more transcendence to you than we can understand, and that draws us into worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.